It's not for fame or fortune that most deem necessary. No, I invest to don a crest for work less ordinary. Nor be it want of medals, cap or polished shoes, but a calling to help others who have everything to lose. To face hell's dancing angels and suppress them with each stride. To search resolve from deep within as loved ones weep outside. To stand with pride and dignity as comrades we remember. Be it pipes lament that fill sad air or silence in September. And may those names that have been etched in brass or granite stone haunt me in the darkness so I never fight alone. And if a colleague's head hangs low from tasting tragedy, let me offer up my shoulder for them to lean on me. But when amazing grace is played, alas, for none but me, lower the flag, but raise a glass, for I'm not far from thee. I'm gathered with the old flames, looking down from God's great height, on call if aid be needed to join you in the fight podcast and today i'm here with my friend james gearing james is the host of the podcast behind the shield and i got to be a guest on james's podcast years ago it might have been in the first 100 episodes because right now you're approaching 800 episodes and that experience actually inspired me to start the fit to fight fire podcast which is pretty cool james and i have had conversations over the years we have very similar mindsets. We're passionate about improving the lives of firefighters and first responders. And what I'm most excited about is over those almost 800 episodes, James has had conversations with subject matter experts in the areas of sleep, mental health, uh, schedules, work schedules, and, and fitness. So we're going to talk about those topics today. So uh, welcome to the show, James. We're really happy to have you on today. Yeah, thank you, John. Just to, to kind of give credit back to you, when I was in my last apartment, I, you probably remember this, I got one of your graphics printed up, which was a kind of thing, it was a black and white American flag in the background. And it was obviously something about ownership and fitness, I forget the exact quote, and uh, got it made into poster size, put it in the gym of that department. Um, and, uh, it was funny. Then I started the podcast, you and I became friends. You came on my podcast, you started your podcast and here we are. So a lot of parallels. So thank you too. Yeah, buddy. It's, uh, the whole iron sharpens iron and that's, what's great about the fire service. It's full of passionate people who are trying to leave things better than they found it. And people have different avenues for doing that. Sometimes it's hands-on training. Sometimes it's a podcast, uh, a social media presence, whatever that might be. You just see it. It's coming from a good place. And I know that's the uh, passion you have. So what I want to talk about first is the first topic I want to talk about is I want to talk about work schedules. And you've shared things over the years that are spot on. And what are some of your thoughts on where we're at right now with a fi as a fire service and the, the hours that we're working? And then we'll talk about how that's contributing to some of the other challenges we're facing. So... This was something I started talking about. Actually, let's go even back to the origin story of the podcast itself. So I had spent two years burying a host of first responder friends, mainly firefighters. And the real 
scary thing was it wasn't like everyone was dying of thyroid cancer or you know things that we're told oh it's cancer that kills us this is the main killer of of uh, first responders or, or heart disease it was everything autoimmune disease strokes suicide overdose you name it and i was listening to uh, barbell shrugged the original barbell shrugged and they had dr kirk parsley on who was a navy seal and very long story short he was a SEAL during pre-9-11 times, became a physician, came back, joined the SEAL teams, the West Coast teams, and became their doctor. And after about a year of sifting through these uber athletes' blood work that was representative of like an 80-year-old woman, he figured out that they were chronically sleep-deprived. A lot of them were on Ambien. A lot of them were struggling in all other areas as well, testosterone was in the toilet. And so he was able to convince his command to change their training schedules so they got a lot more sleep. Um, and I'm listening, driving, going, this is it. This is what we're missing. But I couldn't, I didn't have much of a social media print. Like, how the hell was I going to share this amazing conversation with the fire service? So I was like, okay, I need to find a, uh, a firefighter podcast that talks about this. And at the time, when it comes to wellness specifically, there wasn't anything. And I heard a couple of guests on a couple of the um, the known podcasts at the time and the things that they were talking about coming from my history as an athlete, a coach, and an exercise physiology major, they were just woefully inadequate. They were all, you know, basically wrong, the information they were saying. So I ended up creating the podcast, and that was one of the big topics was sleep deprivation and our schedules. The way that I look at it, we get a lot of kind of um, when you talk about fitness in the fire service, you go, oh, well, there's this one guy and he's kind of overweight, but man, you want to see him on the fire ground. He's a beast. Beautiful. But when does anyone say, but imagine how good he would be if he was fit? This is how we view the work week in the fire service. We do it because there are men and women that are wearing our uniforms to do it for free. There are men and women that have a pager that will run, you know, and get paid for that one fire and then go back to their plumbing job. So in the career fire service, we've got this mentality of wanting to serve and this appreciation, this gratitude for being paid to do this full time and have training. But we have devolved from the firefighter that was in the firehouse, smoking cigars, playing cards, you know, petting the Dalmatian and going to the occasional structure fire once in a while stay there for 24 hours, go home for, you know, a day, two days, whatever, not a big deal. Fast forward to modern fire service, especially the ones that have the combination fire and EMS, which you and I have been in our whole careers, completely different ballgame. These men and women are up all freaking night. And even if we're not, we're one eye open because we're assuming that we're going to get up. So none of us are getting any good sleep in the firehouse. Traditionally, we're younger, so a lot of us have young children. So we leave a firehouse, go home to a crying baby, or you know whatever else is going on in the household, and our partners are exhausted because they've been a single parent for twenty four hours. So now they hand them to us. So it's realizing that just because we've done it this way for a long time doesn't mean it's the right way. It was the right way in a stable. It was the right way when we had a hay barn above, you know, the dining room, but. Today, we've got to understand that to pull out elite performance, which is what you and I are expected to do, we have to mirror the special operations community, the elite athletes that we all pay to watch on our televisions or in stadiums. 
And if you compare those two, they are polar opposites. And I've put this question to so many people on the show, strength and conditioning coaches, back injury experts, neuroscientists, and they all say the same thing. The way that you're working our people in the fire service, it's not if they're going to break mentally and or physically, it's when, because you do not get the time to recover. To add one more thing before I send the microphone back to you, one of the biggest problems is we have told ourselves the same myth. So, you know, when we talk about a shift, shift pattern, we say, oh, I work one day on two days off, or I only work, you know, eight, nine days a, a month. I did a video a few months ago and I used poker chips to kind of represent this. So I put 10 poker chips or piles of poker chips. I'm like, this is your month. But each pile had three chips in. So you take a normal day in the civilian world is a nine-hour day with a one-hour lunch, so eight-hour day. A 24-hour shift is actually three days crunched together. So we don't work one day on, two days off. We work three days on, one day off. Then when you look at the month, that equates to 30 days a month. So it's not this amazing schedule. It's just not. There are pros and cons to it, but the bottom line is – when we have these discussions about the shift pattern, the analogy I use is there's a Rubik's cube. We will spin the cube. Oh, 4896, two days off without sleep. That sounds so much better. Um, I won't even get into that straight away because that's another rabbit hole. But we're spinning the cube, but no one's ever saying, why don't we make the cube smaller? So that is kind of where I, we can unpack the financial and physiological reasons why it does make sense. But that's kind of my initial aha is that there are myths from the firefighter level all the way through to the city manager level and everything in between. Well, I like how you talk about a 24-hour shift is actually three days of work. And some may argue, well, you're not physically working all 24 hours, but your mind is. You're in a hypervigilant state for 24 hours. That very next call could be your career call. You're mentally working for 24 hours. So you're mentally working for three days. And in between that, you're physically working when you respond to calls, you're training, all those things. But everybody knows, even at the firehouse, like you said, you're sleeping with one eye open is because you know that very next call could be significant. And anybody who cares about the job is doing that. So that's a great perspective. The three days is in a 20, you're working three days in a 20. I never thought about it like that. And I think as a fire service, we need to. Well, we know like sleep in itself, when sleep deprivation takes place, it's like the gateway to all these other issues that we're concerned about, <clears throat> mental health issues, um, cancer, heart disease, uh, obesity. Like when you're not rested, you're not able to make good choices. I know myself personally, if I come home from a 48-hour shift, like I'm more likely to make board, poor choices when it comes to food and things like that because my my reserve is just gone. There's like, there's no ability to think clearly. And I specifically have to take a nap just to get back to um, being able to make good decisions. So talk to me about what you've learned in your interviews and in your, your journey along the way. Like when it comes to sleep deprivation, what are some of the things that really stand out to you and what's happening to our firefighters because of it? So we work our way down down the kind of list, as it were, of what kills us. So as we're acutely aware now, it appears that we lose twice as many people to suicide. And I would argue that that's the tip of the iceberg on you know overdoses and some other things that are mental health related, alcoholism, 
um, than we do line of duty death. And then I would argue that was line of duty death, to be honest. But when I ask people in the neuroscience world, in the sleep medicine world, what is the correlation between sleep deprivation and suicide ideation, alcoholism, addiction, et cetera, they're like, it's a linear relationship. You know, the less you sleep, the more fragile your mind, because I know people are aware of this, but at night, the bath, excuse me, the, the brain literally takes a bath, you know, the, the fluid in there will wash through it or process all the memories that we don't need, everything that you physically saw through your eyes that are completely irrelevant, it'll just kind of discard. It'll hopefully, if it's working well, put the traumatic memories in the back of your mind. Um, but that's where all that processing happens. Now, every third day, you remove at least one night's sleep and not accounting, obviously, for newborn babies and et cetera, et cetera. When you get home, a third of your life, a third of your recovery, a third of your rest and trauma processing has been removed. So right off the bat, from a mental health standpoint, point, this is something that we need to do. Then when you look at the impact on the hormones in the body, I have seen an absolute explosion of the use of exogenous testosterone. Um, these so-called men's clinics, I'm using air quotes, um, are popping up everywhere. And the irony is it's the pendulum has swung completely the other way. It used to be back in the day that John would go into the doctor and he'd be like, well, your T is 200, so you're fine. Well, you are a, you know, let's say at that time, a 30-year-old extremely fit tactical athlete this scale that was made it wasn't like oh if you're in there somewhere you're good the backstory of that i forget it was one of the ivy league schools a town near there they studied the town so the 950 was the you know the high school football player with you know everything oozing out of everything and then the 150 was the sedentary 80 year old that was you know one foot in the grave so we were having people that their testosterone was way too low for that individual being told you're fine well now what's happened is the other thing they're flipping that they're like oh yeah it doesn't look good here's testosterone which is extremely expensive and more often than not is unneeded if you're addressing the other pillars of health so by addressing sleep which we'll get into the long term as far as the shifts. But what we can control, obviously, is how well we sleep on our days off, abstinence from alcohol as much as possible, strength and conditioning training, lean muscle mass helps with testosterone production, reduce stress, et cetera, et cetera. And then obviously diet, you can positively affect that. And I will testify to that because I had blood work done right when I retired. And even then at 40 yeah 44 years old my test was like 550 a year ago so four years older my test was 720 i slept that was the only difference i got older i'm more wrinkly i'm slower things hurt more but i slept every night um so that's the hormonal impact when you talked about cravings and everything the changes in the hormones are exactly why our police officers crave coffee and donuts, sugar and caffeine. So there is actually a hormonal disruption that is behind why the men and women that stood next to us on the diamonds in the drill ground were in great shape on day one. And now 10 years later, they look like a Humpty Dumpty audition. And I'm not being a dick. I'm just, it is what it is. You know, there's a lot of our responders that the glory days with the academy, ownership is part of it. The other side is environment. And we've got to understand that if we created more rest and recovery, we would have a mentally and physically fitter workforce. 
the one, I mean, you can get into fertility and all that stuff too. That's definitely affecting that. I think I guarantee you, if you studied the fire service, we'd have a lot more, a higher incidence of infertility problems, getting pregnant, and also maybe some, some defects in our children. Um, but then a big one that's very, you know, passionate to us. I would, I would challenge almost everyone listening. If they are a fit first responder that takes their job seriously, they've probably been told, sit down, you're making me look bad, you know, or it's always the fit guys that get hurt. Well, there's science behind that because as you know, your training is when you break the body down, your sleep is when you actually rebuild. So you've got guys and, and men and women that are out there pulling hose, throwing ladders, then they're doing their strength and conditioning. Then they're actually picking up patients and doing things in the calls and then having only a two-thirds of the amount of sleep that the average civilian does. It's not if, it's when. I've got a back injury and meniscus tears on both knees. You know, it is what it is. Um, so that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you dive deeper, there's even more and more and more. But this is from the budgetary thing, like, oh, we could never go to a fourth platoon. Ask yourself, how much money do you spend on all those things on the back end with injuries, retirements, line of duty deaths, et cetera? You will save money hand over fist if you created more rest and recovery for your first responders the same way as the athletes that you adore every Saturday. So we have talked about different schedules. You've worked different schedules. I've worked different schedules. And I'll kind of share real quick the schedules I'd worked and I'd like you to share what you worked and kind of the experiences we had. But I was fortunate enough when I first got hired, I got hired with Boca Raton Fire. So we worked a one-on, three-off. It was a 42-hour work week. You worked a 24-hour shift, and then you had 72 hours off. It was all I knew for five years. I thought that was the norm, right? Outside of Palm Beach County with a neighboring department, they had the 24-on, um, 48 off with the Kelly day, but ours was phenomenal. And it really did, in my mind at the time, provide me enough recovery that when I came back, I was able to give everything I had for that 24 hours because I knew the light was I had three days off. The light at the end of the tunnel was three days off. And if you took one vacation day, you now had seven days off in a row, which is significant. Go to Colorado and we work what was called the modified Berkeley schedule, the worst schedule I've ever worked. It was one on, one off, one on, one off, one on, four off. It was dangerous. We were in a busy system. By that third shift as a firefighter paramedic making decisions and pushing medications and, you know, the, and that was just me as a medic. I wasn't the officer. I wasn't driving the million dollar rig. Like those were, you know, big responsibilities. And by the time that third shift was over and I finally got my four day, it took me at least two days of that four day to kind of feel like I was recovered. By that third day, it was really my real day off. And then I was just, you know, kind of gearing up to go back to work. Then we moved to the 24 on, 48 off with a Kelly day every three weeks. So the same department, we recognize our schedule was not allowing people to get enough recovery. They did modify it. And we went from a 56 hour work week, which was the schedule I just mentioned, the one on, one off, one on, one off, one on, four off. That's a 56 hour work week. Moved to the one on, two off with the Kelly day every three weeks. Now a 48 hour work week. It was better, but it was not, it was not one on three off that it was not the same. Then I moved on to my current department, 
South Metro Fire Rescue, and we work 4896. And we are a slower system than where I came from. But man, two days, that's significant. It's a significant amount of mental exhaustion is what I'd call it, where you're just in that hypervigilant state. Um, it's still, I get the four days off after that 48 hour shift, but it's still that first leading into that second day of recovery. And then really I have two days off. So if I were to rank them and I'm going to rank them right now, and I'd like to hear your experience as well, by far one on three off 42 hour work week, you have to have a D shift for me was the healthiest. And that was when I was the youngest in my career, but I could only imagine how good that would feel now at 48 years old, by far the best schedule. Number two uh, would be the one-on-two-off with the, the Kelly Day. Number three would be the 4896. And number four would be, um, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, that modified Berkeley schedule. If you're in a busy system, is brutal. So based on my experience, the one-on-three-off, and this isn't somebody who's just saying, ah, that sounds good. I worked it for five years is by far the healthiest schedule available to firefighters. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? So I'll give you my thoughts in a second. Just to underline, this is the problem that we have in the fire service is I just spoke to your wellness chief and you have some of the most progressive wellness initiatives in your department that I've heard worldwide. I mean, truly. But when it came to the schedule, that was a sticking point, you know, and we, we kind of went back and forth about that. And he, I know that he's something that they're looking to address, but again, oh, you know, we don't have the budget, blah, blah, and we'll get into the financial side. So this is, this is what we're talking about. Even the most progressive wellness department in the state still has a 56 hour work week for their department in which 90, excuse me, a 48 hours, their responders are asleep or uh, awake. And, there's a figure that flies around a lot, um, Kirk, you know, is where I first heard it. If you have 24 hours without sleep, cognitively, it's the same as having a blood, blood alcohol level of 0.1. Well, firstly, with a, a 48, now multiply that exponentially. Secondly, think about this. Do you think anyone in that study had been working the shift for 10, 20 years already? These are fresh people that they're studying. So that gives you the terrifying lack of cognition of a 24. And I think a 24 has its place. And I'll get into that in a bit of why I think police, fire, nurses are, are different, you know, firefighters specifically. But 48 hours, the liability behind the wheel in a drug box, on a belay line, climbing an aerial is terrifying and it should never ever have happened in my opinion and i agree with you 100 percent. i never worked the 2472 but i also don't like marijuana but i advocate for it all the time because i know how many people do and now i'm out the fire service i'm not going to rest until 2472 is a national standard my particular journey hialeah amazing department um set the bar so high as a brand new firefighter got their asses handed to them 24 7 and they worked the 2448 uh, with a Kelly, which the Kelly sounds great. And at that moment, like you said, it's great. But we got to remember the rest of the time you're doing a 2448, you're getting murdered. Then I went to Anaheim, another phenomenal department. But again, their schedule was was in the dark ages. And it was a version of what you said. It was 24 on 48. Uh, sorry, 24 on 24 off four times. And at the end of the fourth, you either had a four day or a six day. It would rotate. So now you've got four 
you know, with only 24 hours in between and you are just, you know, and then just to throw this in for a second, most of the departments I've worked for, basically apart from the last one, have been woefully understaffed and I've worked mandatories at the yin yang too. So now you've made a 56 hour work week and 80 hour work week, which is double what the civilians work. Um, so went from Anaheim, went to Orange County, 2448, no Kelly. So another 56-hour work week and then finished at Reedy Creek, which is my last one, 2448 with a Kelly again. Um, so to me, it's it's an, a complete no-brainer. The fact that the person who bags my groceries in the in the supermarket taps out at 40 hours, but you or I that wake up at 3 in the morning, like in, in out west, I was a tillerman. So then you jump in the back of a tiller truck. You drive lights and sirens, you make entry, you do a right-hand search, you find someone, you're also a paramedic, now you start working a PD code, you're okay with that person with working 56-hour plus work weeks. It's It makes no sense. We break, we make mistakes, and it's the polar opposite of the excellence that we're looking for in the SAS and the SEALs and you know your elite sports performers. So it is complete insanity on every single level. And I'll call out our union. Because I paid dues my entire career. But if you look at most industries, the work week is, you know, health and safety in the work week are pretty much the most basal things. And the whole time being a firefighter, I've watched them beat their chest about what an amazing union, what a strong union we are. And yet we've got men and women working 56. Our federal firefighters working 72-hour work weeks. We need to do better. And if we're going to be paying our dues, stop you know, worrying about a 50 cent pay raise and start looking at the thing that will solve the obesity epidemic, the cancer epidemic, the mental health epidemic. I would argue a lot of line of duty deaths, you know, lost, um, disorientated firefighters, falls from aerials and roofs. I guarantee you the intersection wrecks, sleep deprivation probably played a massive role in that as well. So if we want to fix all these things, we have to look at the work week and bring it down at least to what civilians work, if not even less, because they're not getting up at three and saving lives. It's powerful. It's powerful when you package it and you put it in perspective. And I'll go back to what you said earlier. In a 24-hour shift, we are working three days. That's a completely different level of thinking when you look at our schedule. And I don't, I knew I never considered that. I never considered, I make, we all were, you know, we all want to serve. We all want to do our best. So it's really easy for us to uh, make the best of what we have. One of the things I always would say is, well, on a 24-hour shift, my family is sleeping from eight o'clock at night to eight in the morning. So really that's, I'm not losing that family time, right? So you, and that's what we do. That's what the whole fire service does because we're good people. None of us wakes up in the morning and is like, hey, I really want to suck today. I hope I do a bad job. We all want to do a good job. So what we do is we take what we have and what we love to do. And even though that part of it is probably not healthy, we make the best of it. We put it into a perspective. We, we frame it in a way that it works for us so that we can continue to do what we love to do because that's the part of the job. We love doing the job. So when, when they know we love doing the job, when administrations know that and they know there's another person in line to, to take our job, everybody wants to be a firefighter. It's real easy to take this group of people who love what they do and to not address one of the major issues because it's going to cost you money. Uh, what do you think? How would you look at the cost of changing schedules? Let's say a department was going to go to a 42-hour work week and the whole budget thing, because you hit on it a little bit when you say, 
on the back end, you're paying for injuries, mental health stuff. You know, what, what are your thoughts on just making that a priority and how a department might budget for that? What would you suggest? There's a phrase or a quote that I love, and I have such a tiny brain that I've still struggled to memorize it, but it goes something like this, you know, plant a seed of a tree under which the shade you'll never know. That is what we need from our fire service leaders. Not that you look like a rock star in a budget year and you get your little Christmas bonus, but that you actually advocate for your people. And this is going to take education and it's going to take advocation. If you think about the money that is spent on the medical retirements, workman's comp, the overtime, filling those seats that are vacant from the people that are hurt or off or whatever they're going through, the line of duty deaths, the lawsuits, when you push a wrong med, when you hit a car, whatever it is, we are bleeding millions and millions of dollars in our cities and counties around the country. You put in a D shift and you got to bear people like, oh, that's an entire extra shift. It depends. If you've got a Kelly day, you negotiate that. You're not keeping that Kelly day with the 2472. You get to bargain that away in lieu of this better shift. You know, if you like Orange County and I work there, you were given quite a few vacation days. You could hardly ever take them as a paramedic because they were understaffed and you just get told, yeah, you can have April 17th and September 3rd. <laughs> but, um, you know, but so you give some of those away because as you said, one vacation day now gives you basically a week. Beautiful. But by front loading the money and, and it, one of the things that nauseates me is they, they say, oh, look at the fire service like a business. Okay, no. First, no. <laughs> but secondly, okay, let's say let's buy into that for a second. Then why not Google? Why not Virgin? Why not about these progressive businesses that are now, by the way, realizing that they can ask their employees to do a four day, nine hour, sorry, four day, nine hour work week with the exact same, sometimes more productivity. So the corporate world is realizing that less is more because your inbox never empties. So people are like, well, I can get five days worth of work done efficiently in four days now. I'm not going to screw around by the water cooler and take 12 poo breaks anymore. And so, you know, there, so we're, even if we were mirroring business, why aren't we mirroring the progressive businesses? You know, so understanding that investing in your people is, is an economy and not investing in your people is a false economy. It may save money for your budget year. But you're bleeding money and losing people. Morale is down. Performance is low. Firefighters are getting fatter and fatter because, again, ownership and environment together. There is no downside. And then most importantly, if you truly value these men and women, you make them fitter and healthier and happier in their career. They'll be able to pro um, process some of the mental health things better. They leave physically fitter. Now they have longevity in retirement. Right now, it's almost like a badge of honor. Like, oh, yeah, I do a, a job where we die within five years of retiring. That's not something to be proud of. And again, it shows a failure in our profession and even in our unions. So we have to put the health, physical and mental health of the firefighter at the absolute central part. Richard Branson, head of Virgin, his whole ethos is if I have happy employees, that will make happy customers, not the other way around. I agree. And when you look at the mental health challenges we're facing, uh, recently, FDIC Chief uh, Dave Rhodes did the keynote. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that, but he 
he mentioned something that's not being talked about. So we know that sleep is part of the problem. Uh, we assume it's the calls. We assume the calls are the reason that firefighters are having mental health issues. And Chief Rhodes highlighted, and I agree with him 100%, I believe it's hypocritical leadership and toxic cultures that are causing the majority of the mental health issues in addition to these firefighters are already sleep deprived and now they feel like they're under the microscope or they feel like they're being targeted or bullied. And when he said that on a platform like FDIC, I thought that was so important for that conversation um, to be, to be had in that type of environment. Um, So we both have worked for several different fire departments. We both have experienced a lot of different types of leadership. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there are calls that will hang on the walls of our mind for the rest of our lives. I've had that with the theater shooting. You and I have talked about that. But I've had more, and I'll tell you what, man, not too long ago, it took me years to go to a counseling session. And I thought this anger I was carrying around for so long was the fact that I was on that call and I didn't have the resources I needed to do my job. I get into this counseling session And for an hour and a half, I talk about the toxic leadership from my previous department that I'm no longer with. And it really like made me realize, man, there is so much to that. There is so much to how we treat our people, um, especially our administrators, our leaders. Uh, What are some of your thoughts and experiences with, with that topic? So, yeah, I've worked for four departments and then I volunteered for a local department I almost am embarrassed to say I volunteered. It was for a few months and then I'm like, this is not for me. I feel like a paramedic ride along student. But, um, so I started in Hialeah. Um, when I went there, that to this day, the city of Hialeah firefighters, if you live in that city, know that those incredible men and women have delivered such an amazing service despite their department. That city has betrayed those men and women so many times. At one point, they almost cut an entire shift. We're talking about adding a shift. They almost went to a 72-hour work week. Their chief at the time, who was like a DC or BC when I was there, was about to give up his men and women. Disgusting. But when I went through there, the training was phenomenal. They cut people that needed to be cut. They held our feet to the fire, and that set me up for the rest of my career. Then I go to Anaheim, same thing, 25% attrition rate, every probationary class. The bar was there. Like, And you talk about pucker factor, you're a Florida-trained firefighter, and you go to a California truck-heavy fire department when everyone else has been trained on you know, um, sticking the ladder and uh, all the roof ops, and you're like, oh, so you don't lay it flat on the floor and then climb it up with the rungs and then stand by the side of it, hoping it's not going to fall over? My learning curve had to be like a straight freaking line. It was it was crazy. So I was absolutely shitting myself. I was going to get fired every single day. But, you know, rose to the occasion, met that ladder, met that bar, and the training continued. The training was amazing week in, week out. There was no fitness standards because we worked out because that was the ethos. They didn't need fitness standards. And when I was there, pretty much everyone that wore a chief's badge was someone you would follow into a fire. So high level of training, high level of trust. 
those two are the ones I put on the pedestal. Like I said, Anaheim, despite their environment, excuse me, uh, Hylia, despite the people they work for, Anaheim had great support all the way around. Phenomenal department. Like I said, firefighters wet dream being a Tillerman in the California department. Go over to Ketsu Orange County in, in Florida because, uh, I was married. We had a child. She wanted to come back to, uh, the East Coast with her family. And Orange County has some absolutely amazing firefighters within it. But it's th- at that point, the standards were, were very, very low. You were very much a number, almost zero trust. You'd go on fire scenes with the experience that you had, tearing your hair out of some of the command decisions. Um, micromanagers, I'll give you a perfect example of one. We had a PIO who, um, I think he got promoted as a BC, came in the station one day, very, very busy firehouse, especially the rescue that I was on. Um, and uh, he brought the tick and he was ticking the TV to see if the guys had been watching television during the day. I'll wow. just leave that right there. So then you think that's bad. I go to my last place, which protects Disney World. Um, and the culture was so toxic that it wasn't just a few people. It was many people. And again, this isn't me throwing shit. This is me explaining this and telling these stories so we can understand exactly what you're getting to the, the, the relationship between toxicity and negative impacts and camaraderie and positive impacts. So I go to that place. I get hired with a firefighter who about, eight months into my probationary year dies of an overdose. And that would rock a fire department normally. There were people like, well, I didn't really know him. Other people were like, oh yeah, but did you hear how he died? And I'm like, what in the fuck is going on here? So I start, I do a fundraiser for him, make t-shirts, try and make, raise some money for his family. Um, his wife was pregnant at the time and volunteer to go on one of the trucks to you know put the aerial up hang the flag we wait there the whole funeral day um there was another truck of his previous department that just had one guy with a truck sent so we helped you know him break down all his stuff too went and grabbed some food on our way back my lt gets a phone call you need to go to each of the stations and apologize for taking so long at the funeral these guys have been running calls yeah Wow. So I'm a pretty chill guy normally. I was more angry than I'd ever been. I mean, just crying. I was so angry. So I get back to the station, walk in where I was assigned. Everyone's there sitting in Lazy Boy watching TV. And I just turn around and say, please tell me what I've heard is not true. And then it starts. Yeah, but we were busy. And I'm like, we just bury one of our friends. And you're more worried about running a call or two than, you know, the fact that we were out there representing all of you at this funeral to make sure that we did the right thing for his family. So Anaheim, Hialeah, super high bar, Orange County mid, Reedy Creek, they dug a trench to put the fucking bar in. This is, you reap what you sow. So this is the thing. When I was in the last place, my mental health was... I was never, I was so lucky. I was never in that dark place. So many people on the show have been in. And I thank the pure lottery that my life was that with all the bad shit I had, I had a lot of good things that balanced it out. But that 
absolutely could have driven someone to stick a gun in their mouth the way that place was. When you love this profession and you understand brotherhood and sisterhood and you lose someone and that's the reaction you get. I mean, I, I literally, I went home that day because I'm like, I'm either going to break someone's jaw or I'm going to go home. So I chose the second one because the paychecks keep coming. But this is the, this is the negativity. So that micromanaging, that busy work, all this bullshit that comes along with it, that is 100% one of the contributing factors to the mental health crisis that we have. You take shitty people and then you start giving them bugles the negative impact that can have not only on a department and the, uh, you know, the, um, God, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, the, the kind of happiness of the department, please throw that name, that word, if you remember. Um, morale. But, uh, morale, thank you. Yes. Um, but on the individual's actual mental and emotional health. And there was one video, a friend of mine, Rolk, who is a, he's actually worked with the Anaheim guys quite a lot. He's a movement kind of coach but if you ever see a big almost like a hawaiian looking guy muscly shaved head crawling around everywhere that's rolk he had shared a video of this young female firefighter from california talking about just going through one of his classes a few months later she took her own life and she was probably early 20s and when you kind of delve back in there was an organizational bullying element to that so Chief Rose is absolutely right. And he's been on the show and he's phenomenal. And here's the irony. You, Chief Rhodes, Todd Edwards, Danny Dwyer, all these people that you talk to that the rest of the country is like, oh my God, they're amazing. Their own departments, more often than not, don't like them. You know, the profit is never received in their own land. So there's that too. And I found that, especially in the last one, I'm just trying to improve fitness in the fire service. I'm trying to do some of these fundraisers to honor people that we lost. Uh, I hurt my back and what worked, the movement practice I'd worked, I came in and taught everyone to stop other people going through what I went through and they just didn't want to hear it. Just like sit down, shut up, you know? So in the interview, they're like, oh, how can you make our department better? And then you get through the door and like, we, we were just joking about that, shut the fuck up. So this, these are all the elements, I know I've monologued for a bit, that are absolutely compounding to the other things we talk about. Now you've got, like I went through a divorce while I was going through medic school, you know, and then you add that sleep deprivation, then you add that organizational stress, and then you add some alcohol consumption. Some people, that's enough to create that perfect storm to create that lie in your mind that you're a burden and the world will be better off without you. Well, it's when we have a profession that the foundation of it is honor, integrity, character, and we are all in on that. Like we are, we love that about our profession. We love that the, com the, the communities we serve, they trust us day one. It's not because of anything we did, we could have came right out of the Academy. We haven't done anything yet. And they trust us. They'll hand us their lifeless baby. They'll point to the window where their kid is trapped and they believe we're going to do what we need to do because of all those who came before us. And when we begin to see a uh, hypocritical, leadership, people that are holding others to a standard they can't even remotely come to themselves. When we see targeting, when we see bullying, when we, see, you know, a fire department has a problem when it is going after it's people who have passion for the job and are doing good work. It's a sure sign there's a problem. When, when the department you work for is going after the people that you actually want to show up to your own home and, and fight your fire or rescue your family because of whatever reason, because they have influence, because 
I have no idea. I can't even begin to understand the mind of somebody in a leadership position who would not want to lift another person up. I just don't understand it, but it's a problem. And those guys that you mentioned, the, the Todd Edwards, the Dwyer, Chief Dave Rhodes, those are all people who have made a significant impact in our fire service. And they've, and that's just the beginning of the list. I could name another two dozen that the same thing, and they're making an impact all across the fire service. But for some reason, it intimidates insecure leaders. And the reason why I believe, James, is because the way they got into that position, they probably didn't earn the credibility along the way. They probably didn't have influence as a firefighter, as an engineer, as a lieutenant, as a captain. And for some reason, they thought they were going to have it once they got into that chief position or whatever that position is. And they don't because we do a really good job. Our job as firefighters, as paramedics is to do scene size ups and general impressions. That's our job. And we do that all day with each other because our lives depend on it. And when we start seeing people who are of shady character, don't have integrity, treat people poorly, we never forget that stuff. And I'm not saying somebody can't be that way and change, but most of them don't. So it's a, it's a big problem, man. And I think the thing that people who are treating others poorly, when I look at somebody who's treating somebody poorly, to me, that's just an unhappy person. Because happy people don't want to treat people poorly, want to treat them good. And those people are probably having their own mental health issues if we really dig deep. And there's no reason for somebody who's happy to treat somebody poorly. So um, yeah, man, I, I appreciate you covering that topic. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast or people that are getting after it day in and day out. And sometimes their dedication to the job makes them a target. And I want them to know like, Hey man, you're not the only one it's going on all across the fire service. Keep doing the right thing. Keep, keep training. Like you're going to be responding to your own home for your family. And over time, you're either going to, those people that are treating you poorly are going to go away or they're going to be exposed for who they really are. So that would be my message. If you're listening to this part of the podcast. I want to move into, jump. yeah, I'm go sorry, ahead. John. I'm going to no. jump in because I just did an interview yesterday that's also pertinent to online the kind of organizational betrayal element. One of my friends, Jason Casper, is a Green Beret, former Green Beret, um, served in Iraq, served in Afghanistan. Now he's a phenomenal fiction author, if anyone likes military fiction. And he, he has a very uh, raw mental health element to his stories, too. Go look him up. He's amazing. But we were talking because he's recently done some some therapy through psilocybin and psychedelics and things that are working very well for him, um, which is you know another entire conversation about what tools are available in our toolbox. But think about all the veterans that we have from Iraq and Afghanistan that were told we're going in for this. We're going to Iraq because of nine eleven. We're going to see the you know, weapons of mass destruction, and then twenty years later. They just drop everything. They, not being the military, but the people making decisions, drop everything and run. Think about the weight of that organizational betrayal. Well, that mirrors, like I've had times where in the last place, someone in Disney that basically is like, oh, I'm going to sue and try and you know get millions from this place. We respond as a medic, give great patient care, get a diligent refusal. Um because this person has said, I'm just going to go home. I'm going to, you know, do have a shower, whatever. Okay. Well, here's some ice packs and here's some bandages and beautiful care. I come back. Oh, so-and-so said they needed 27 stitches and you didn't catch it. And immediately 
you're trying to prove that you were right versus the other way around. And you're going, well, why would one of my paramedics miss something like that on an assessment? It makes no sense. So I've had that, you know, like I said, organizational between the people I worked with, you know, something like that, where they're not behind you when a complaint comes in, for example, which was completely unfounded. And when I found, try to find the person so I could counterclaim, they're nowhere to be found. I can't get a name. So weird. Anyway, um, but then you think of Danny with his rescue, which I would argue if a police officer made that rescue, they'd be getting awards, but a firefighter makes that rescue and you're trying to take their job. So that organizational betrayal, like you said, if you and I went into Aurora all over again or a structure fire, I'm trusting you and you're trusting me because we're trying to make sure that neither of us gets killed and we get to whoever we're trying to respond. But then you are in an organization where they betray that trust. That is the very foundation, as you said, that our oath sits on. Courage, compassion, you know, um, service, camaraderie, all these things that make a firefighter, which is what I talk about a lot. The helmets, that's history. That's not tradition. Stop calling out tradition. Tradition is courage, service, you know, humility, all these things. That's the tradition of the fire service. But if your tenants are betrayed by the people you work for, that shatters the very foundation that you're standing on, which I think is why it's so debilitating to a passionate first responder to be doing everything right and then have their legs cut from under them. I agree. I've experienced it. I uh, got disciplined for, and it's interesting because the organization that disciplined me uh, years prior gave me the Medal of Honor. So no discipline in the history of my career. We go out to a fire conference. Uh, we teach on our own dime uh, to raise money for burn victims that are both first responders and military. And we go out there and I share the photos. I'm proud of what the cadre is doing. We're having a great time and we're wearing our fire department issued gear in the photos. And we actually had a chief officer with us that was part of the cadre who they could easily have contacted and said, hey, what are you guys doing out there? He was part of the instructor cadre. But that's what you do when you truly want to find out what's going on. You you contact the people that are involved and you say, hey, what, what were you guys doing out there? Hey, we're raising money for burn victims of military and first responders. But when you want to legitimately target a group of people, you skip that. You don't talk to anybody and you just send it straight to an investigation. And that's that betrayal that I felt. And it was really hard to drop that. And we did win. We appealed it. We won. Everything record got cleaned. All that stuff was done. But you know what that was like for 18 months? You got to go through that. That's Talk about mental health for that group of instructors because of the behavior and the people that were in charge of making those decisions had an agenda to come after a group of people within an organization that have influence and have demonstrated a history of good work. It was It was devastating for me personally. And it was hard because it was everything it went against everything I believe the fire service stood for. And it really bothered me was people of that type of character were in those positions to make those decisions. Well, I'll give you another example. Again, let's look at unions for a second. Orange County, they decide they're going to put drive cams in. They tell us it's not going to be for any punitive action. It's just, you know, for whatever they said, my engine gets banged out on a structure fire. My medic and I are like, why the hell are we not going? We stand by the radio. You know, we're all bunkered up already. We contact dispatch, and then the second the second um, dispatch comes through, they'd screwed it up the first time. 
We leave the fully bunkered up, seatbelts, the whole works, lights and sirens to the fire. There's an intersection. It's a T-junction. So, And then the road that I'm on is a one-way road as well. There's a single car that could be in any way, shape, or form in the traffic lane is pulled over. I roll down to... The drive cam said, I think it was six miles an hour, but basically a stop because you're talking about a satellite. It's not perfect, but we've been told you have to stop at every single stop sign, even during, you know, um, code three responses. So I stopped, but I happened to have clipped, I clipped a curb right before. So that's why the cam went off, go to the fire, you know, get our assignment. Everything's good. I get written up for speeding through a stop sign. Uh, forget the verbiage of basically risking the lives of the citizens of Orlando and my crew and everyone else. And I go to union and I'm like, well, this is bullshit. And they go, it's an unwinnable case. I'm like, really? There's 10 years of union Jews and that's what you're going to tell me? So anyway, time goes on. I'm like, whatever. I'm not even going to fucking worry about it. Like you, it was my first write-up ever anyway. So I'm like, well, sit in my file. I'll, I'll, you know explain it if it ever comes out again but um a year goes by some dude does some investigation and then they're like oh we're actually overturning every drive cam write-up so it became a oral counseling but the verbiage all stayed the same that i almost killed everyone in the entire planet earth you know we did everything right we were poised we were we were proactive in the fact that we hadn't got banged out in this fire and we're like this must be wrong let's let's call it in and we get written up for basically probably was a two mile an hour through a stop sign when the car had pulled over and we were going lights and sirens through a structure fire. So this is the thing. Unions as well. Understand that you have the ability to help or hinder. If you are betraying the people that have paid you dues month over month over month, and when they actually need you, you just throw your hands up in the air, go, oh, we're not going to win that. Shame on you as well. 100%. And the problem is, is, I love I love the union. I'm a union member. I support the union, but we are firefighters. We're like so we're firefighters that are now part of the union. We went to a conference. We got some training. We still work for the department. We're employed by the department for the people that we're supposed to fight for. So it's real easy to say, well, this is an unwinnable case. It protects you as being still part of the fire department. And maybe you don't have the training and maybe you don't have the skill set to actually do what needs to be done. Or maybe you have the relationship with the people that are the ones responsible for this too, because we've seen that too. We've seen that whole union and the the people responsible for the discipline having that type of relationship. So I believe exactly what you said. If you're a union member, my expectation of the union is that if I'm in a position where my job is being challenged or my character is being questioned, that I have the right to fight for that with help from my union mem- my my union. And so man, you're you're spot on. Well, let's get into something a little bit different here. I want to talk about and we're going to talk about several topics, but I want to talk about I know fitness has been a huge part of your career. Uh, it's allowed you to perform at a high level both mentally and physically. Um talk to me about where you see the fire service right now, why you believe and I know the numbers that we see out there, a lot of them are off based off the BMI, which was created in the 1800s. So it's kind of an inaccurate measurement when they're like, I don't know how accurate 70% of an overweight fire service is. I don't know because I don't know how that is being calculated. But I do know what my eyes see. 
I do see overweight firefighters shopping in the grocery store. I do see overweight firefighters responding to calls. And when I say overweight, let's just use the word out of shape because body composition isn't always the indicator of whether or not you could perform. But oftentimes it does fall in line. If you're, if you're morbidly obese, you're going to have a difficult time on a fire. It's just, it's just science, right? If we're going to call it something, it's science. So why do you think we have that? When we go through an academy, you know, and like you talked about setting the bar high, obviously those people won't make it through if they show up in that condition. Uh, kind of give me the breakdown of your view of why we see so many firefighters in that deconditioned state. So I think firstly, the statistic I've heard over and over and over and over and over again, and again, I think if you put a seat in front of a Walmart or anywhere where there's a large amount of people, depending on where you live, I think geography has part of it, you know, a an influence, and I'll get to that in a sec, but the the actual nation is 70% obese or overweight. So that's the first thing. That's the pool that you're pulling from. One of my guests recently, I forget who it was, but they made a good point, is that it's becoming more polarized, meaning our fit people are really fit now, You know, more so probably than in the past. When we were young, technically our fit people were bodybuilders that thought they were fit. You know, now we've got people, whether they're whatever their sport, like we understand what tactical athletes are supposed to be look like. And we have some phenomenal young recruits coming through, but there's this big gap, you know, it's either the very fit or the rest of them, which sadly, you know, are very deconditioned. So I think that we have a smaller pool to choose from, but of the fit responders that are coming into our professions, there are some phenomenal you know, law enforcement officers that are already purple belts in jiu-jitsu, you know, or wrestlers. I mean, there's, there's some potentially phenomenal uh, recruits coming in that are going to have long careers if they keep doing what they're doing. The problem I see with, you know, with our generation a little bit before is there are, there are two factors that I touched on. So in Florida, as you know, when we go through school, our training is literally labeled minimum standards. When you get your piece of paper, it says John Spira passed firefighter minimum standards one and two. So that is basically telling you this is as shit as you should ever be in your entire life. We've labeled it for you in case there's any confusion. What I've seen in the fire service is a lot of Uncle Rico saying, oh, man, I was the fittest I'd ever been in the fire academy. So firstly, that ownership level in some departments has been lost a little bit. Like you said, South Metro, you have trainers and you know all kinds of the experts in their fields to help mentor your men and women and keep them at the highest level of performance, assuming that they're using those resources. But to be fair to the police officers and the firefighters of the world, if you take someone who isn't highly motivated and has been raised on movement and athletics and fire academy was really one of the biggest crucibles they've ever been in their life. And then you put them into 56, 80 hour work weeks living almost entirely on a rescue, trying to grab food at Taco Bell between. That's not exactly an environment to foster fitness either. So it's a two-pronged conversation on top of obviously the mental health side, which is contributing to obesity and you know alcohol consumption, et cetera. So in an ideal world, the guys that say we shouldn't need a fitness standard, they're absolutely right. you know. But the Navy SEALs have a fitness standard. Ocean lifeguards have a fitness standard. Police and fire are about the only professions I've ever had on the show where they actively fight any sort of fitness standard, which is insanity. I just had Rob Ramirez um, from National Rescue Consultants on. Firstly, phenomenal episode. I can't wait to put that out. That man's 
Rick and career is insane. Some of the horrible stuff that he's responded to, but he responded to the, um, Fort, um, Fort Myers beach hurricane, hurricane Ian and decimated the West coast here. And just based on sheer luck of where task force two was deployed. And when they got there, they were on their own for almost 24 hours before the next crew could even get close to them. So he said they were evacuating high-rise buildings with stair chairs, like 20 floors. So when people are like, oh, James, why are we doing training in this building? It's not realistic. When, really? You know, who's who's the um, the fire chief of Denver that speaks a lot? Super. Uh, chief chief McGrell, high-rise yes. firefighting. Yeah. Chief yes. So, great. He is great. We were at the Orlando Fire Conference. And this is a loaded question because I knew what I was doing. But I asked chief, I said, chief. What is the, 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 the number of stairs that you expect your firefighters to be able to climb? And he said, to the top of my highest building. And I was like, mic drop and wanted to walk out. <laughs> That's what you need to say. That's Chief if you cannot- He consistently still works out. He's, he's, he's living what he's preaching. So uh, I love hearing that. Sorry, man. I just had to give him some more props because he's, he's been a mentor of mine. He's local for me. Uh, when I was out at the uh, academy as an instructor, he would run our, our recruits through a drill where you were climbing at least 30 flights of stairs and then you were expected to fight fire and then you were expected to go make a rescue of a downed firefighter. And that was like the very end of the academy. That was like the big drill we did. He instructed on it. He participated in it. He was up and down the stairs with them. So didn't mean to jump on you there and hijack your conversation with me. But yeah, man, it's that's a great answer. I love it. Yeah. Well, firstly, I need to connect with him and get him on the show so you can help me with that after. So thank you. Yeah. But, um, but so that's pertinent. I mean, I had Ricky Nuttall who was at the Grenfell fire and they were going, you know, up again, tens of floors to get to these poor people. Next to my station in Reedy Creek, we had a 28 story hotel. And so, you know, I would have this, oh, you know, it's not realistic. We'll take the elevator conversation. Shortly after I left that department, they had a, a, um, I think it was a fire call or a rope rescue call and all the elevators were out. So they had to climb. But uh, anyway, so I would did remember trucker Jukes, little boy, um, Joshua Jukes son who passed away. When I learned about that all the way from Florida, I'm like, this is terrible. So again, wanting to do something for him. Um, we did a fundraiser and I actually put a scenario together in that tower and we call it truckers tower. And so I'm like, all right, we're going to do a high rise strip. And we're going to simulate getting all the way to the top floor. We're going to do a search and then we're going to intubate a mannequin after. So I put all this stuff on my skinny ass body in a high rise strip for a true, you know, high rise um, evolution. You've got your own pack. You've got a spare bottle. You've got um, uh, a bundle of uh, inch and three quarter and you've got a tool and then your bunker gear. All that together is a hundred pounds on your frame. Then you climb 28 stories up. Then you do a search, then you pull the body out, then you intubate. And uh, this is my point, you know, whether it's Rob talking about the stair chair, whether it's Ricky going up the Grenfell Tower, you train for the worst case. You don't train for the bare minimum. The CPAT is a joke. That shouldn't be what you gauge your fitness on. Oh, I got 1019, high five. No. So this is the problem is you have these bare minimum fitness standards that some places will put through. But if you ask a member of the Australian SAS, a member of the Navy SEALs or, you know, whoever, they're training for worst case scenario. Their fitness needs to be, you know, a Benghazi or, you know, Operation Red Rings, whatever it is, a worst, worst case scenario. That's what you set up on the drill ground. So hopefully when you go on the fire ground, 
it's going to be lesser. You know, the MMA fighters want their worst training to be in the gym, not in the cage. So this is where I see the disconnect. You need to put that bar back at the front door and invite those incredibly motivated men and women that are in great shape and mentorship as well. Go to the places where fit people are. I'm trying to partner with the Spartan guys because uh, Joe wants to help use Spartan as a um, recruitment tool. Get local departments where the races are to show up, run the race with everyone, put them through a little fire evolution in the, the spectator area, and start handing out pre-ops. Pre-ops. Who wants to be a firefighter? You just came, you've been part of a team, you're fit, you got dirty, you got cold, you're probably going to be a great person for us. I love it because the fitness aspect of it, it demonstrates you already have the discipline. You already believe fitness is important. These are all things that we shouldn't have to teach or recruit. Like people should know what the expectation is of the job, the physical demand of the job when they show up. Like if I have to get you to buy into being physically fits important, we're, we're already way below, behind where we should be. That should be like a given. So that makes complete sense. You know, college athletes, uh, military, these are all the people that we want in a job where life and death is on the line, where yeah. your fitness could make the difference between life and death. I love that. I think that's a great, a great idea. But also with the diversity conversation, I love how these things all kind of flow and tie together now these days. If you'd asked me six years ago, I'd be completely lost on most of these topics. But so the this pulling the elephant, you know, from the room out of the corner and putting it square under the spotlight. The pros and cons of the whole diversity conversation is absolutely there are underserved members of communities that really weren't given a fair shot at becoming a firefighter or a police officer or a paramedic. On the other side of the scale, the way that some cities and counties responded to that is they get out and give me 20 gay black people, you know? And so what happens is of that 20, what are the chances of them being great responders? You know, some are going to be phenomenal. Some are going to be awful. So what I love is the mentorship programs that are out there. One of my good friends, Chris Hickman, has one here in, in Ocala. And what they've done is they say, all right, as long as you can get to station one, which they'll put central area usually nearer you know most of our downtowns tend to have the poorer communities somewhat nearer to them they have gear they have training they'll put these guys i think it's three times a week they will prepare them to be amazing academy recruits there are um, scholarships available to send some through fire academy certainly at the moment i mean anyone who graduates is going to have a job waiting the other side so rather than saying i'm going to scoop up a bunch of you know purple five-legged people because we haven't got any of them we're actually saying okay you got the fucking shitty end of the stick for so long you you didn't even you know a lot of you weren't even told you could be a firefighter one day you could be a police officer we're going to remove all barriers to entry anyone who wants to be a firefighter come try out with us some of you will realize you don't want to be a firefighter and that's an absolute win as well because you can strike that off your list but some of you are going to end up being some of the greatest firefighters we've ever had in our department and we never would have found you had we not reached out and removed the barriers to entry you know a wealthy person in orange county california is not going to have a problem putting themselves through fire and medic school someone in you know parts of Orlando where I've, I've worked, Paramore and those areas, they do. They are going to school, you know, they're trying to put food on the table. Some of them are probably working along with their parents or parent. They haven't got time for, you know, all that other stuff. They don't have the finances for that other stuff. So that is also how you find the best candidates. You go into places that you just weren't going in before. And it's not just sporting performance. 
being a good softball player doesn't mean you're a great firefighter. So go into all these areas, Spartan races, you know, mentorship programs, and find the freaking best people. Put your bar back where it needs to be, and you'll stop being a revolving door department, and you'll start having people lining up outside your HR department again. And I believe, I think everyone wakes up in the morning at some level, and we're all we're all chasing the best version of ourselves. And there are people out there that want to be challenged. There are people out there that want to be uh, held to a really high standard. And I think what happens is when you lower the bar and you make it super low, you lose those people too. Those people don't want to be part of that. We all want to be part of something great. We all want to feel like our life has meaning. It has an honor to it. Uh, I agree 100%. So that leads me into because we're just coming up over an hour here, I'm going to ask you the final question and I'll kind of chime in as well. And we kind of talked about this in the past that we would discuss what our, based on our experience, what our perfect fire department would look like from standards to work schedule, to culture, resources, and moving into retirement. Now, and this is just based off your experience. I'll kind of share some of mine, but I think, man, just based on the conversations you've had on your podcast, the departments you've worked with, I think you have a pretty good handle on what what would work best and provide an environment that would allow us to serve at the highest level, recover, come back, do it again, and then at the end of our career, live a career, a long, healthy career. So what are some of the key components you see to if you were allowed to build a fire department today, you got everything you could possibly want, what would that look like? So going complete nucleus first, as a profession, we need to do a much better job of educating people who we are and what we do. And I'm actually, I'm going to try and get from behind the shield a little bit and get out there myself, like almost seven years of conversations. You know, we, you're doing a great job of this already. We need to educate the people. We're waiting for our employers to to tell people. But at you know 2023, oh, what are we buying you for lunch today in the grocery store? And why is there a fire engine on our medical call? Really? Like we've had EMS in this country. People think it's the you know Miami, LA. It's actually Pittsburgh in the 60s where it actually originated. So you know what are we talking 60 plus years now? So we, firstly, as a profession, need to do a much better job of educating people who we are and what we do mentorship programs to prepare young recruits and find young recruits, I think are absolutely essential. Imagine having people showing up at the academy that understood exactly shift schedules, the fact you're going to be cleaning toilets, you know, the the mental health side, the fitness side. Amazing. I love minimum standards, but I think we need to be careful not to lower the bar. Spiking a ladder is an incredibly important um way of throwing a ladder, for example, the way I was taught in Florida did not prepare me to throw a ladder where there's hedges, cars parked, alleyways, etc. So keep that bar in the academy. Physically, you can or you can't. Oh, we can get two person. I used to be on a three man engine. My LT would be on the radio. My engineer was 400 meters up there on, you know, pumping and I'm all the way down the lane carrying hose, ladders, tools on my own. Sometimes you don't get the luxury of, of that. So stop saying you'd have other people because you might not. The front door, set that bar high. That You will reap the benefits of that high bar for the rest of your career personally, and your department will, will thrive from it. So you know, as you talked about, I truly believe the answer to the hiring crisis is firstly, 
create a work week that makes people realize, you know, want to come work with us. Like, oh, why can't we get people? Because they hear about how we work and they like, they're educated and they have the unlimited resources on the internet. Like, this sounds a bit shit compared to this other job I've been. So fix the work week first, create this environment for responders to thrive and you will have people lining up. Put that bar up high. Challenge the good, good firefighters, paramedics, police officers, prison guards, whoever, and be known as that department like, oh, my God. When I took my CPAT, when I went back from West Coast to East Coast, even though I was in great shape, I would like to think I had the humility to go, I'm going to go do a practice test and make sure I smash it before I go and test over there. So I'm doing a CPAT test in Anaheim, get chit-chatting to the instructors on that three-minute stair climb that we do. And he's like, you know, oh, you know, what's your story? I said, well, I work for Anaheim and go into back to east and he's like i have never heard of anyone leaving anaheim fire department that's what you want to hear about your department and that's a department that set their bar high they fire people but people didn't leave you know so that is it so understanding then the investment in the people here's one idea i want to share with you you and i have both done multiple testings one of the most insane things is I've taken three polygraphs, which means I've lied my way through three polygraphs and four (laughs) of those psychology assessments. And I say that because I did some stuff when I was younger, nothing bad, but I tried some things, danced a lot, hugged some people, and it was illegal, air quotes. The same thing now that they're having a huge amount of success with psychotherapy and is probably going to become legal. But the very first time I was honest on an app, they screwed the app up and they threw it at my face. I was like, oh, I've got to lie to be a firefighter. I've got to pretend to be a choir boy. No, I've never done anything bad. I'd love to see dead people. Yeah, sign me up. Um, a little sarcasm there. But um, so, and then the psychology test is called the Minnesota Personality Interview Test. I've probably got that slightly wrong. I've asked some of my psychology friends, I'm like, tell me about this test. They were like, it is never, ever meant to be a standalone assessment. It is used in forensic psychology with a gamut of other tests to give us an overall look at a human being. And they hold that as a gold standard. So one thing I would do as well is I would take the money that you already waste on those two ridiculous tests. Because for anyone who wants to pass a polygraph, look up how to pass a polygraph. Clench your butthole when they ask the first questions, you're going to smash it. Um, so take that money and instead give your new recruits over that probationary year six counseling sessions. Because the least known thing about mental health in the fire service is that so many of us bring things into the job. Now, those things become strength if we process them and they make us freaking amazing first responders. But if we don't process them, and let me tell you, 800 stories, so many of my brothers and sisters in uniform have some horrendous things happen when they were younger. So if that foundation is already cracked and then you come in and sleep deprivation and the horrible things that we see and organizational stress and alcohol on a day's off, you're now creating that perfect storm to lose yet another firefighter. So change the mental health from box checking, cover your ass bullshit to actually investing in your people and normalizing mental health and creating a relationship with a mental health professional from day one. Fitness standards. For right now, just put them there because anyone who takes the fitness seriously, they're going to be easy and have a culture of training. Get away from the busy work. Like, I know some people are all for like testing hydrants. I think the water department should test hydrants. You should know where your hydrants are. 
but you shouldn't be the first person to discover that there's a, you know, a, a beer can up there and all that. You shouldn't be fitting smoke alarms. You shouldn't be doing school visits all the time. Once in a while, absolutely. But you should be doing, you know, I, I like the fire inspections. Anaheim did that. It wasn't so much for the, like, who really cares about that? It was you get inside some of these high-risk areas in your first due. I love that too. And then another thing on the back end, as people start progressing through their career, mentor the potential retirees. Start preparing them for this transition because when you're in a crew, you have purpose. You're in a tribe. You know, you have, um, you know, you drive home every day. No, you made the world a little better. Now, all of a sudden, your ID doesn't work. The bay door just closed behind you. And for most of us, you got, what, Cobra for a year, then no insurance. And that's it. Prepare them for that transition. Start seeing if there's another tribe that they can start building, jujitsu, writing, chess club, whatever. And then also, Walt Lewis had this idea. I love this. Some of the retirees, if they want to, bring them back. Bring them back to teach. Use their knowledge. Our generation now has not seen the fire that the, the 1980s firefighters have. You know what I mean? So that's kind of some of the real bullet points that I've learned over this whole thing. None of these are unique ideas. But the absolute most important thing is that we have to put the work week back to more rest and recovery if we're going to ask people to stay up for 24 hours at a time. You fix that, you're going to attract more people in, and you're going to have healthier people going out the back door. I love everything you just said. I agree with all of it. I'm going to add a couple of things. I'd really like to see that we don't promote bad humans, no matter how well they do on the test. If you're not a good person, like if you're not somebody who's a good person, even if you rank number one on the test, I don't think you should be put in a position where you're in charge of, or you're, I don't like to say in charge, but you're to lead additional people. I think, uh, unfortunately, some of this toxic culture we're seeing in the fire service nationally is due to uh, people that have character issues, integrity issues, uh, being put into promoted positions. And I'd really like to see a um, national fitness standard, a national standard where it's a national, the IAFF comes out and says, hey, this is our national fitness standard. Uh, it would take a lot of the the burden off the individual fire departments, and it wouldn't allow the ones that don't have one uh, to skate by. So those are two things I'd like to see. And this is, is kind of, I know this has happened uh, throughout the country, but you know, when it comes to promotional exams, a lot of people cram, they'll cram for that exam. You know, maybe they weren't into the job. They weren't, you know, somebody who was uh, training consistently and now they're going to, they're going to promote. And typically those people that weren't that way prior to promoting are typically promoting for the wrong reasons. What if we added a fitness assessment as part of our promotional process that was factored into your, into your score? But James, man, it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal conversation. We could talk for hours um, and we will get back on. I, I would love to talk about some other, some other topics in the fire service. But what I'd really like is um, I want you to talk a little bit about your book, about what your book's about. I want you to share that with the, um, with the community and then maybe after that, kind of share how people could get in touch with you and, and talk a little bit about your podcast. But yeah, let's start with your book. Beautiful. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. So a few years ago, I wrote a blog post called I Wish My Mind Could Forget What My Eyes Have Seen, which is a quote from Byrne from um, blanking on the gentleman's name, but he's an engineer. And I'm embarrassed to, to not give him credit for that line. But um, I happened to be, I went to a call 
the middle of the night, got back to the station, lay down, and it was when we'd had a, a spate of firefighter suicides, and I just had this thing banging around in my head. So I got up at like 3 a.m., everyone else is asleep, and I just sat and wrote this blog. I think I just started the podcast, so I had a website by that point, put it up as my very first blog, shared it, went back to sleep. And then a few days, it starts going viral, and I'm like, oh, well, okay, well, here's something that people obviously need to uh, – to hear. So then I wrote a few more. There's one five easy way, uh, how to kill a firefighter in five easy steps. Um, some, as you can imagine, is tongue in cheek, not an instruction manual. Um, and some other ones. And it was just starting to unpack not just mental health, but, you know, overcoming injury, the addiction crisis, so many things that we see. Um, and I wanted to turn, I wanted to write a book at some point, but it was one of those things that when it's not ready, you just can't write it. There's a lot of people I know that have done amazing things and those ideas sat in a bedside table for a year, two years. Um, so when COVID hit, I just happened to be at that point where I started write, writing again. And so I pulled all these things together. So on the outside, it kind of looks like an autobiography, but it's not. The book is called One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter. And I wanted to write a book that would resonate deeply with the men and women in this profession, but also educate the public on what we do and what we see, because what we see versus what is told on the news is so different. We see the opioid epidemic. We see, you know, the, the anti-fat shaming conversation, which is the obese 45-year-old and the last person they saw was my ugly mug and how that's not beautiful at all. It's heartbreaking. So what I did is I took a story from my life and or my career and each chapter, there's then a takeaway and we go into you know, nutrition, like I said, overcoming back pain, you know, mental health, suicide, et cetera. So hopefully it's, I mean, it would be a good toilet one. You sit down, you read a few pages and then, you know, you put it down for the, for the, the next one. But so that was the whole point of that. The podcast is called behind the shield. Um, like I said, almost 800 episodes. I'm actually working on my website because I've been doing this for seven years, 800 episode. And if you Google firefighter podcast, it doesn't come up. I've never made any of the lists of the Firefighter podcast. So in the world of what I now know as SEOs, I fail miserably. Um, but I've had, you know, a, a huge spectrum of guests, obviously a lot of fire service people, but special operations, doctors, neuroscientists, child soldiers, dancers. I mean, you name it, because I wanted to get outside of our box, you know, the the um, the people that are FD, FDIC every day, or every, excuse me, the people that are FDIC every year are amazing but we tend to hear the same voices over and over again i wanted to go if we're talking about strength and conditioning not the firefighter who's a coach on the side the person who has trained navy seals and that's their full-time job for the last three decades that's who i wanted to get you know so th there's a very very diverse guest list um and uh yeah you can find that on spotify itunes all the places that you get podcasts too but uh and then i am writing a second book which will be a fiction um which i'm very excited about but i'm still in the early stages of that so that's going to be probably later this year hopefully well man i just want to say thank you for the work you're doing and what i love about it it's coming from a place of authenticity we've had several conversations you have a heart to help first responders to help those who are helping others and you're doing it, man. I mean, it's the message is getting out there. The amount of time you've invested in getting these people on your show and getting that information out to our brothers and sisters, it, it's it's important. It's it's good work, and we appreciate what you're doing. Uh, so 
with that being said, we're going to close out this conversation and uh, I definitely want to get you back on the show in the near future. I know you're about to take a break to start write, writing your book, but uh, we'll get you back on here, man. Thank you very much for being a guest. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, mate. I mean, you've done amazing things. Like I said, I, I Facebook memories pops up and it's one of your quotes from you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago that, that, you know, obviously I liked and shared back then. So here we are having this conversation and I want to get you back on. It's been a long time since we spoke. So I'll flip the microphone on you and we'll schedule one after this. Sounds good, brother. Have yourself a great day. If you're looking to improve your mental and physical fitness, join our community for only $5 a month, the cost of a cup of coffee. You'll receive a workout of the day, seven days a week a daily inspirational message seven days a week, a monthly training. But more importantly, you'll be surrounded by a community of like-minded firefighters all on the same mission to become the best versions of themselves so that they could serve their community and their families at the highest level. Head over to patreon.com backslash fit to fight fire and join our community.